Good Sunday evening, y'all. Welcome to Water Break. Tomorrow is July 4th, and as we celebrate our country's birthday, Happy Birthday America, I hope this celebration emboldens you to, to fight for our country. Our country's sick with cancer, and we are even divided over how sick we really are and where the problem uh, cancer is actually located. In other words, we can't even agree on the diagnosis. Now, conservatives have been very slow to walking into kind of waking up to this new reality. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, conservatives were getting fired for praying on football fields, for standing against forced vaccination policies, and for our political belief, did we really start pushing back? A little late. I'm glad we're there. Uh, but at least we're starting to push back. So the question is, is where did conservatism go wrong? And why did our conservative worldview not, uh, you know, how did it let things get so bad? The Water Break team and our guest today aim to tackle this question. So grab your best scotch and Dr. Pepper and enjoy the show. This show is brought to you by Bobo Construction. Stop sending your hard-earned money to companies that hate you. That's what I liked about our Public Square interview this last week. It's time to build a Christian economy. Bobo Construction is literally doing just that. For all your construction needs, partner with Bobo Construction today for any project in California, Nevada, Washington, Idaho, and I'm sure if you got a big project in your state, they might even consider that. So contact Austin Bobo at uh, abobo at boboconstruction.com or visit the website boboconstructioninc.com. Whatever is fair and right, that's what we do. That's Bobo Construction's motto. I love it. Cannonball or belly flop? With SCOTUS overturning Roe, the division between right and left, red and blue states, is only going to harden and further divide our nation. How could it not? One side believes baby killing is a moral good. It is the great equalizer, you know, between men and women. It's freeing women. And the other side believes murdering babies is wrong. The family is the building block for the, our society. And you get hired because you're qualified for the job, not because your skin is a certain color or because you're, you know, one of the alphabet people, LGBTQP, I put the P in there, hashtag, dollar sign, whatever. For decades, conservatives have come together on the basis of what we are against instead of what we are for. We are against the FDR socialism policies. We're against JFK, LBJ, you know, presidents in the 70s. We can't even remember them. <laughs> and, and then we get to Reagan. Uh, Reagan was good, but he, he was still an evolving conservative. Bush, we get to Bush. Bush gave us compassionate conservatism, which has absolutely just been so destructive to the conservative fight in this country. What we know as conservatism, the conservatism that was largely birthed out of the 50s and 60s, is not really a historical, you know, Burkean true conservatism, but more of a facade, a built on sand and not built on true foundations. Modern conservatism tips its hat to the polytheistic gods with Jesus kind of, you know, the top, the top God, you know, small God, small Jesus. Modern conservatism is against, you know, CRT, wokeness, grooming, Biden's inflation, even though that's just a much of a Republican problem. Even though we can agree that CRT and grooming is bad and, and be against those things, what this really is, is a godless conservatism trying to cling to some sort of traditional morals and the way of life that you cannot have apart from Christ. We absolutely reject the Christless, nebulous, compassionate conservatism. A conservatism that compromises to its own destruction. We reject that, Christ, that Christless conservatism. 
We need to recover what it means to be truly conservative. We need to recover what I, what I want to call a faithful conservatism. It's, a, it's compassionate, sure, when it's called for. It's bold when it's called for. It's courageous. It's a fighting conservatism that understands where we've gone wrong as a nation and what it's going to take to get our nation back on track. This faithful conservatism believes in the God who created heaven and earth, and it believes in big families, small governments, faithful churches. In that order. Actually, not in that order. Big governments or big families, faithful churches, small governments in that order. This faithful conservatism is built on Christ, and it understands the role of family, the church, the government, as defined by God's word, and it creates a vision that everyone wants to get behind. The tendency to get people to do this is our tendency is to push and prod everyone into kind of begrudgingly getting involved or getting behind the cause. But what we need to do is cast a faithful conservative vision that feeds people and pulls people along that people want to get behind and that gets them excited about truth, beauty, and goodness uh, that truly fights for a better city, state, and nation and a faithful conservatism that is truly, truly freeing. I have with me today uh, my guest, Josh Abitoy. Josh Abitoy is the managing director at New Founding, a network designed to serve the American people, a seasoned private equity. He's a seasoned private equity lawyer background. Josh is a, a grateful beneficiary of the Christian education, having been homeschooled in EA from Union University before he earned his JD from Harvard Law School. He lives in Sugarland, Texas. How about that? Prom- you know, got more promised land people here with, the, with his wife and three children and is a member of University Park Baptist Church. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on Water Break. Thank you, Gabe. Good to be here. Yeah. So with the, the Roe v. Wade decision, it seems very much to me that the landscape is, is the political landscape is going to shift significantly. How are you reading those tea leaves? Oh, absolutely. And I'll just start by saying what a, what a wonderful occasion. I still can't get over how happy I am. It's all yeah. that great morning every morning uh you know since that case came down and um i hope you and everybody had unmitigated celebration um since last friday but uh but yeah it opens up an entirely new ball game you know that so you know roe v wade was a decision that came out um you know uh from from a, a court that was extremely uh liberal you know back in the 60s and 70s it was sort of the the final and sort of the capstone case in a series of cases that increasingly invented rights and these were rights that the federal government could use to stop states from taking action right so it's it's in the same line it's in a similar line of cases to the cases that said you can't pray in schools right or the cases that said that states cannot um regulate contraceptives Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but but rose the capstone it's the trophy case in that whole line and you know so when it gets struck down in dobbs it's really signaling something that's been happening for about 10 years now, which is that mm-hmm. power is actually starting to devolve from the federal government back to the states. We could talk for a long time about why that's the case. I think a big reason why that's the case is because our society is so divided mm-hmm. that our, our legislatures are gridlocked. Yeah. So because they're unable to exercise power or sovereignty at the federal level, uh, power has to, of necessity, devolve down to the states where mm-hmm. there's actually sufficient consensus one way or another to get things done 
Um, yeah. but, but Dobbs is an accelerant. It's pouring gasoline on that fire. Um, right. I think trends that maybe shrewd observers have seen for 10 years are soon to become apparent to everybody in this nation. Mm -hmm. Do you see this kind of um, uh, really is an opportunity for almost some sort of, you know, great uh, reset in some sense mm -hmm. uh, where uh, red states can truly be red states and blue states can truly be blue states? Uh, you know, do you see the realignment kind of codifying in that way? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure, you know, I know I know you're, you're seeing it up in Moscow, Idaho. Um, it's happening all over the country. I know Texas and Tennessee very well. It's happening here. Yeah. You know, ever since, um, and it really picked up with COVID, right? Um, there's been this thesis in sociology for like 20 years about this thing called the big sort, which is that yep. the idea that Americans are organizing, moving, you know, to new locations based on political and cultural affinity. Um, we all know that since 2020, uh, foot's been on the gas pedal on that development. Um, in fact, according to some studies, you know, about 5 million Americans have relocated uh, because of remote work, uh, essentially wow. they used to live where they want to be now. Yeah. But the crucial thing, 20 million more still want to relocate and they can because of remote work. All of these studies were done before Dobbs. I know as a matter of fact, I've talked to people directly on both sides of the equation who mm -hmm. intend to move following Dobbs. There, some of them are being drawn to states where, um, you know, the law is going to protect the unborn and they want to be part of a, you know, they want to be in a state where there's a just government. And, um, you know, and on the flip side, I know um, some uh, some progressive colleagues uh, and former colleagues who uh, intend to, uh, you know, intend to consider moving out of conservative states. So yeah. it's uh, it's very real. And I think very soon everybody in basically across the country is going to have very direct experience, have a friend, a neighbor, a coworker who's actually moved for these reasons. Um, no. You know, and then the, the, the other thing that's going to happen is the way that the legal landscape shifts coming out of Dobbs is going to have a big effect on how state governments act. So, um, you know, it's setting up for clashes between the federal government and governors, right? Yeah. So I think you probably saw um, the Biden administration announced a couple days ago that they're studying the, the feasibility of setting up abortion clinics on federal land within state uh, boundaries. Yep. Now, that, that's a setup that, um, you know, it's probably unlawful when it goes to the Supreme Court, the federal government probably gets slapped down, but it's really setting up a very direct sort of confrontational power challenge between a governor of a state who feels like they have a duty to the Constitution and to God to protect innocent people in their state right. and then a federal government. That's right. What is, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, it, it seems like we're kind of in this the conservatism that we know kind of birthed out of the 50s and 60s. It's not a historic, um, true Burkean kind of conservatism. You know, what do you see as the uniting principle of kind of a winning conservative coalition uh, given where we're at? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the, the old coalition, they like to say it was built on a three-legged stool, right? Anti-communism, libertarianism, and um, social conservatism. Um, I, I think the new winning recipe is is really leaning into our Christian past and heritage as a nation, really leaning into uh, the the access that we have as Christians to a transcendent moral order. Um, we mm -hmm. have seen now in both the states and in Europe, uh, classical liberalism, content free ideas about governance that have no attachment to a transcendent moral order. Those mm -hmm. are just insufficient to actually compete in the public square 
with a viewpoint like like Islam in Europe, um, you know, or um, you know, in both Europe and the States, cultural Marxism. Those are comprehensive viewpoints that have substantive ideas about the good and the true and the beautiful. Um, classical liberalism has no content, right? And so, look, when we look at a winning conservative coalition in the States, and you know, look, thankfully. Um, it's possible to have a Christian winning conservative coalition, but we have to start, I think, with the acknowledgement that the conservative coalition has to be led by conservative evangelical Protestants. Yeah. Um, we are the biggest and the most cohesive uh, electorate chunk. And, you know, praise yeah. God for that, you know, it's not a yeah. guarantee that in a representative democracy, we can cobble together 51% to win in a faithful way. But I think mm -hmm. that's still very possible in the States. Um, you know, so, so I think that, um, you know, our rallying cry can be no king but Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. I, I really think that. Um, and, you know, our message to our junior coalition partners, those who don't share our faith, but we need them to, to win an election. I think our message is, um, you know, Christianity uh, has access to a transcendent moral order. We've got a belief system that will beat all of these pernicious ideologies in the public square. And you know what? Guess what? If you don't convert, we hope you do. But even if you don't, life in that society is going to be a lot more tolerant than yeah. life in, in a society dominated by Marxist revolutionaries. Right. What, um, you know, so I'm in, uh, sorry, 100% agree with you. No king but Christ. We want a faithful conservatism, uh, conservatism that, that's built on Christ, not a Christless conservatism. But for example, I live in Idaho, and Idaho is, uh, you know, probably split between. The voting block is probably split between Christian, Mormons, uh, rhinos, and then kind of like this this libertarian fighting uh, fighting right conservatism. How do you, how does this you know faithful uh, conservatism, this no king but Christ conservatism? Uh, you, you touched on this already, but how does it kind of how does it win elections? Practically speaking, you know, the, you got the Mormon God involved, you got the rhinos, and the rhinos are um, they're frustrating to me <laughs> but basically how do you win election with with that message with faithful conservatism uh with all these different voting interests and blocks yeah i mean well I, we need to go piece by piece i mean there's no way to actually do this to do this well you've got to look at a particular state and look at a, look at exactly who the constituencies are and there's going to have to be different messaging for different places for sure i don't know idaho well I, the places i know well um, libertarians are not a major part of the winning coalition. It could be very well different, you know, in the Northwest, and I'm, I'm sure that's the case. But, um, you know, I think for convincing folks who are from uh, different religions, but are, are sort of on the conservative end when it comes to their policy preferences, you know, I, I think the main selling point is just, guys, you can't win by yourselves. You need to join us, um, you know, and, uh, and, and basically trust us that we, you know, Yes, we bring our we wear our our views on our sleeve and we bring those to the public square, but also our public square is going to be more, more tolerant than the alternative. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you would rather have, um, you know, if you're a Mormon or a conservative Jew, you would rather have Christians in charge of a society as opposed to, you know, the faculty of Berkeley. Right. Yeah, so that's right. That, that's that's what we've got to tell them, you know, with respect to the libertarians. I mean, I think that. We've got some education to do. Um, I think a lot of people grow out of libertarianism eventually when they're confronted with the real world because 
you know, it's just a, it's a practical, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on libertarians' toes who listen here. <laughs> it's a practical reality that, you know, humans are social and political creatures, and we are going to organize each other into hierarchies um, to keep order in society. And so, you know, if you're, if you're sort of just giving up on that game from the start, well, you're going to lose out to, um, you know, to, to, to very bad people who yeah. also want to create hierarchies, just ones to very bad ends. So part of what we're talking about here is kind of reinserting uh, a true conviction of Christian conservatism back into the Republican Party. Um, yes. And and so with that with that kind of broad reinsertion, it always comes down to well, who who how, how do we find these leaders? Who who do we elect? What leaders are going to you know uh, can we bank on moving forward? Well, I, I mean, this is there's a conjunction of historic factors right now that really favor bold action at the state level. That's true. Um, Ron know, DeSantis, yeah. The, yeah, right. Ron DeSantis is sort of the first of what I hope is a, a new generation of political leaders coming up. I hope we he's been great. I hope we have better than him. I hope we improve on that record in different red states. Um, you know, the, there's all of these factors we talked about at the front end, right? Like the post-Dobbs landscape and the big sort and devolving power to the state level. All of this is setting up to really, I think, create a really attractive draw for Christians that are interested in politics, you know, get involved in state politics and, you know, give it a try. Don't leave your beliefs at the door, lead boldly. I think you're seeing people, you know, a lot of voters, some of whom might describe themselves as moderates, uh, you know, they want fighters and moral champions in public office right now, um, mm -hmm. just because we're, the insanity that we're facing as a society is just so far outside the pale of what even a, a normal person, you know, could mm -hmm. accept um, that I think they're actually willing to tolerate some pretty like distinctive, bold yeah. Christian messaging because they know that they can trust a Christian to actually fight some of the insanity we've been subjected to. So I know you can't speak on this from, let's say a state by state perspective, but you know, maybe from a national perspective, what are, what are like the top, you know, political issues, you know, should the, this faithful conservatism be, be pushing? Yeah, I think, I think formation of the youth, like, and I'll, I'll use that as a broad category. Um, mm -hmm. We've already seen this. It plays out differently in different places, right? But, I mean, formation of the youth led to uh, Glenn Youngkin, a professed evangelical, winning the governor's race in Virginia, which, you know, five years ago, we would have all thought that would be impossible. Um, and he, he won that because people were gravely concerned about the way that their children were being formed, uh, you know, in the government schools. Um, certainly in a much more red state, it's a very hot issue in Texas, in, you know, Tennessee, I'm sure in Idaho. And, and there's lots of sub issues to that. Right. So there's certainly the CRT indoctrination, um, you know, drag queen story hour and all of the systemic grooming that's happening in public schools. Yeah. That is one of the most um, radicalizing uh, issues I've ever witnessed, right? So, right. Um, you know, we need, to, uh, we need to focus on those issues. And, and then at the state level in particular, to cast the, the, the alternative affirmative vision, I mean, it's more possible than ever to really move the ball forward with voucher programs, getting funding to Christian schools where you mm -hmm. can actually form children's character not just keep the poison out, but actually affirmatively form it in a good way that like cultivates a healthy imagination, uh, give them the right sort of canon of literature that mm -hmm. um, hopefully helps to, you know, 
make them good citizens, yes, but also, you know, lead, lead some of them to God. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that opportunity is totally before us. So in the red states, you know, to get there, we've got to get past the political power of the teachers unions but, and actually implement that. And that's going to be a significant draw. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a Christian living in a random state and you realize I can move and I can send my kids to a intense, rigorous, classical Christian school for free because of a voucher program, you're going to take that up every day of the week. And so, you know, that's, that's, the, that's really the long game. There's some other stuff we need to focus on as well. And, you know, I think um, with, with economics, and this is more at the national level, but, um, you know, the, the, the GOP has been focused so long on mere GDP maximalization to the mm-hmm. exclusion of other national interests. Mm-hmm. So, for example, trade policy, you know, um, it may very well be the case that you have to make a hard call that helps American workers that is actually slightly less economically efficient in the aggregate because you don't want jobs to be outsourced to China and have communities destroyed. We need right. to, we need to be able to make those trade-offs sometimes. Mm-hmm. We can't be free market fundamentalists. At the same time, our coalition has changed. And part of that changing coalition is now getting more working class people in the coalition. And mm-hmm. I do think we need to be cautious um, as we explore perhaps a slightly more moderate economic stance we need mm-hmm. to be cautious to keep in mind, um, you know, a lot of a lot of concepts from biblical justice and from our Protestant heritage about um, we we don't want to we want to incentivize people to work. We don't want to create a society um, where people are incentivized to to not work and you know create um, you know the dependency that we see on the welfare state. Um, as as we understand the broadened coalition, there are going to be voices on the new right who advocate for um, expansions of, of welfare policies and things that actually look like a form of distributism. And yeah. so we need, to be, we need to be cognizant of that and navigate that well, because I, I think that path is also uh, going to be a temptation. And that's why, you know, a lot of, a lot of this faithful conservatism, it really does matter, you know, who's leading it and, yeah. and what kind of backbone they have as they, as they navigate these these um, differing, you know, differing motives with or differing um, issues within the kind of conservative uh, party. Uh, you know, the last question here, you know, over the next 20 years, um, kind of a big question, but do you, do you see this like realignment of red states and blue states? And how do you see that maybe affecting our national presidential elections, you know, moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. 2024 will be the first test of this, um, n- these new conditions. I think it's setting up to be a clash between uh, titans, you know, between a, a champion from a red state and a champion from a blue state. I think it's going to be, you know, something like Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis or Gavin Newsom versus Trump. Um, the, the presidential elections are going to be very contentious, um, even more than they've already been. Um, and I think there's going to be some very interesting, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens between the states and the federal government as fallout from those elections. I think yeah. that, um, you know, we've seen states say, I'm a sanctuary state, I'm going to interfere with immigration law um, in my state, or I'm going to disregard federal marijuana laws. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to see a ton more of that on both sides of the aisle. And that's a sign of a, of a weakening uh, federal government. Um, so I, I think the federal government is going to get weaker, uh, more energetic leadership at the state level. 
Um, and then, you know, look, I mean, history, I, I do tend to be believe in the, the um, proposition that a house divided cannot stand. Um, my hope is that conservative states that have just rule are like cities on a hill that attract people and inspire people and actually create a new national consensus, you know, that Americans can rally around. That's my hope, but that's not a guarantee whatsoever. Um, and if, if, the, um, if the United States do not get some basic consensus around like basic moral issues, they don't all need to be, you know, theonomists or whatever, but just, just very basic things about is an unborn person, a human person, what is marriage? You know, can, what is a man or woman? If we can't unite around those things, we're a house divided. And I think the, the prospect is very grim for this country. Right. Uh, how can people follow you? What websites? Yeah. So, so I'm, you can find me over at AmericanReformer.com. I write for them, um, American Reformer. And you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at business. That's B-Y-Z-N-E-S-S. Thank you. We'll put that. We'll make sure that gets out. Uh, thank you, Josh, for coming on Water Break. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Gabe. This is great. My teammate, Joseph, back home. Uh, he's been traveling the world this last week. Uh, was able to come in here. And this last week, um, or actually I think it was on, uh, maybe it was on Thursday, Joe Biden was also traveling the country. And, and he had some kind of shocking things to say uh, while he was abroad. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. We've been a leader in the world in terms of personal rights and privacy rights. And it is a mistake, in my view, for the Supreme Court to do what it did. Joseph, I think one of the most shocking things about that is we have our president going to another country and complaining about the Supreme Court from abroad uh, what what's your take on on that well you know hyperbole is not uncommon in politics but this is certainly a great example of it where on a national international stage and of course you're talking about all the issues that nato is dealing with right now including a war uh, to say that uh, one of the destabilizing in forces of on on the planet is the Supreme Court of the United States. It's just you know it's a, a bit of a, a temper tantrum. Of course, it's hyperbolic, mm -hmm. uh, but is it surprising? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Now, one of his uh, spokesmen uh, on on Friday this was must have been Friday morning, I think, uh, where he said uh, that. Um, uh, Biden is very much pushing a new, he said, new liberal world order. They, they aren't even, they're, they're saying the quiet things out loud. Yeah. Well, and, and that, the context of that is important. They were asking him about the gas prices and people, hey, we can't, everybody can't afford to pay 485 for gas in some places, much more than that uh, forever. What do you have to say to them? And in, in your quote there is, well, this is the price for protecting a liberal world order. Now, what mm -hmm. does he mean by that? Of course, we're all gonna we're gonna speculate. But I think uh, you know, in in a past life, I worked on a transportation committee in the state legislature in in Washington State, and I saw mm -hmm. how transportation planning was done. And there mm -hmm. is no doubt that there is a not insignificant percentage of the political ruling class that wants to see transportation be really expensive, that wants gasoline to be really expensive. Wow. 
because that allows them to save their mother, which is, of course, the earth. It's a worldview that influences the way they think about these things. Uh Many of us are feeling the pinch at the pump and we Mm -hmm. wish it would go away. But I promise you, there are some people who say, yeah, that's too bad for you. But really, it's for the greater good. And they have no intention of making it easier to drive your car. Again, in some ways, this is accelerating things and helping them accomplish goals that they have long wanted to accomplish, which is social engineering of where people live, how people drive places. And I promise you, there are people who hope this is the new normal and that Americans mm. start adjusting to this. And then in, in some ways, I guess you could describe that as the liberal world order that they're trying to protect. That's right. That's what I was going to say is that this one of the things that we do know that's obvious about this new liberal world, world order is that Biden wants a different economy. He wants a different economic incentives uh, built in uh, to, to what's going on. You know, one of the things that also struck me about all this is you have a number of Democrats referring to SCOTUS and referring to the um, Roe v. Wade overturning is like illegitimate. We have an illegitimate SCOTUS. We have an illegitimate Supreme Court. Uh, you keep hearing that. Uh, you know, what's the difference between the, the liberals complaining about an illegitimate SCOTUS and conservatives complaining about an illegitimate election? Well, I mean, there are different arguments, of course, I, with respect to the the Supreme Court and the concerns about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Honestly, the thing that I think we're dealing with right now is a crisis in civic knowledge. Mm. 90%, maybe more of Americans don't know the first thing about our country, mm. the way we were established and why we were set up that way. So, for example, one of the cases that they're really outraged by is the fact that they limited the rulemaking authority of the entire of the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. And that's and, and they don't like the outcome because they like the rules that the EPA had created. But right. in reality, all the Supreme Court was saying is, hey, you bureaucrats in the EPA, you were not elected to make these laws. And unless Congress specifically gives you that authority, you don't have that authority. That authority belongs to Congress. Now, every American, every freedom-loving person should be excited to learn that the people who are going to make widespread decisions with huge implications are going to be the people that we elect who are accountable to us. But because they don't like the result, they're saying, oh, the Supreme Court is somehow illegitimate because we don't understand the process. We don't understand the difference between the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. We don't understand the difference between the legislative branch and the agencies that are created by the legislative branch and the different power that they have. This was a very, actually pretty modest, just refereeing. These are the rules of the game. Make sure we follow the rules. And people are apoplectic because they don't know the first thing about the rules. And I think that explains a lot of the political disagreements that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. People argue about the Supreme Court and what they're doing because they don't have any idea what the purpose of the Supreme Court is. They just want to see an outcome by any means necessary. And they don't understand that if we consolidate that power to achieve their their desired outcome, that's actually a risk to them as well. Wow. Thank you, uh, Joseph, back home. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate that insight. That's really important. Uh, so thanks thanks for your time. How, how can our listeners follow you? Always fun. Uh, yeah, thanks, Gabe. Uh, at, on Twitter, at Joseph back home. I also write for uh, the WashingtonStand.com as well as World Opinions, uh, WNG.org. So you can find me there. Okay. Thank you for coming on, Team Water Break. Thank you, sir. So, I think he makes a, a really good point about uh, and really, the, the 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 education system that we've created has uh, uh, really created what Joseph is calling kind of a, a civic a crisis in civic knowledge. And uh, my next uh, teammate, Rhett Burns, 
pastor and assistant editor of the Fight Laugh Feast magazine. So if you haven't subscribed to the Fight Laugh Feast magazine, make sure you you subscribe. Uh, you know, Rhett, it, it, it seems like that that crisis in civic knowledge in a lot of ways could be laid at down at the, the, the feet of the church, um, not discipling its people well, and then therefore culture doesn't disciple well. You know, school education doesn't disciple well. Everything kind of comes from that centrific or that centrical center platform. Um, now, and I think this is interesting in regards to the Roe v. Wade case where, uh, you know, we saw a, a number of pro-life Christians and their reactions. And there was, there was actually some very interesting and unique reactions coming from the Christian uh, world. What's your, what's your take on, on the reaction from the Christian? Sure. So, so the Friday that the Dobbs decision dropped, I saw probably at least three distinct reactions from people just kind of within my circles. Uh, I saw some people on social media and they took their instinctive response was to try to score points against their opponents. And so it was an opportunity to chide or, or to shame uh, others um, and try to score some points. And some of those punches uh, landed really well. Uh, some of them did not. But it was interesting to me that that was uh, the, the timing of it. And that was the instinctive response. Then I saw others, their instinctive response was to celebrate and to do so in some very tangible ways. And so we saw people having spontaneous office parties at their workplace. We saw people having steak dinners uh, with their family and block parties in their neighborhoods, shooting off fireworks. We had uh, a group in our community. We got together to sing psalms and offer prayers of thanksgiving and praise to God in celebration of, of the Dobbs decision uh, ruling that came down. Then there was another group that their, their instinctive response was to celebrate, but I, I don't think they knew how. <laughs> and so they were left with this kind of just vague uh, sense of happiness. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, our, our team won, but we don't really know what to do about it. Maybe they put up some some posts on Facebook or Twitter about it, but they didn't really know how. And so my my pastoral interest uh, is for that third group that they would that they would know how to celebrate in tangible and earthy ways because it's that culture that knows how to celebrate, that knows how to feast, that knows how to uh, express joy in those in those tangible ways. It's, it's that kind of culture that is going to incubate the type of politics that, that we mm -hmm. want and need in our land. It's that type of culture that is going to produce the type of culture um, that will uh, spread the glory of Christ. You know, it, it, I think the initial response of rejoicing and celebrating is good, but it also, I think, concerns me that uh, we forget the tr the 60 million babies that have died. We forget the judgment that uh, we really do deserve in all this. How do you how do you how are you sorting through? Okay, the victory and uh, the the judgment. Sure. I, I do think we need to celebrate God's mercies. And this was a mercy and a gift from God. Um, however, we do need to remember the fact that 60 some odd million babies have died. We need to look back even just the last several years in our country. So much has looked like judgment um, yeah. because of what the, the blood guilt that, that, that cries out. Mm -hmm. So much has looked like judgment with some mercies like the Dobb decision mixed in. But we need to remember that there's really only one way out of judgment, and that is repentance. We, right. we, we can't vote our way out of judgment. We can't vaccine our way out of judgment. There's one way out, and that is 
repentance. Now, repentance will play out in the political realm and other places where it's going to be very, very practical. And we need to we need to be mindful of those things. But the need of the hour in our country right now is repentance. And so what does what does that mean? What does that require? That means yeah. we need some widespread, white hot gospel preaching, gospel proclamation. Yeah. And so how do you how do you encourage the the, the current let's say men and women who are working for businesses where they're wanting to, you know, where the Starbucks or whatever is wanting to pay the $4,000 fee to uh, take one of their employees to another state where abortion is still legal. Uh, you know, how, how do you help people, you know, some of your current parishioners are probably in that, that circumstance where they're working for companies willing to pay that. Uh, so how, how do you kind of sort through that with a parishioner working for a company that's, that's willing to do this kind of crazy stuff? Sure. I, I mean, anytime you're in the economic realm, you're going to be mixed up with uh, yeah. unbelief and, and unbelievers and, and sin. You're not going to come out. Uh, it's not going to be an untainted uh, economic square, but you want to take steps uh, in order to try to. I think we try to remove myself from those type of companies. You don't want to be giving your hard work uh, and your productivity to people. They're going to turn around and then use that. Uh, to support the culture of death. Um, it might take a little bit of time before you can get there, but I would encourage people to, uh, one, speak up and use all appropriate channels that you have at work. Go through your human resources. Go through proper channels with leadership to voice opposition to that. Um, mm -hmm. I know that might be costly, and it might end up costing jobs, but if you're going to lose your job for something, standing up for life and for God's word and God's law is something mm -hmm. worth doing it for. But then also, while you are there, I would be thinking about, okay, how can I get uh, somewhere else? How can I try to find other companies that aren't pushing this? How can I um, be a part um, of a company or yeah. maybe start my own business or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is um, where I don't have to um, be a part of that? Kind of goes back to what uh, Josh was saying earlier with the big sort. We're going to have to sort ourselves according mm -hmm. to these, these beliefs. That's right. You know, I was uh, participating, I was hanging out with Pastor Wilson in a, in a group of business leaders the other night, and we were talking through this very thing. And one of the things that Pastor Doug said was, um, you know, the economy is messy. Um, uh, and the way Paul uh, dealt with it, um, you know, he said it's okay to buy meat that was sacrificed to idols. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's nothing wrong. You, you, aren't, you aren't responsible for maybe where the money's going downhill from there. Um, but you're, you're allowed to, you know, participate. I mean, you can't, you can't live not of the world. You can't live outside of the world. It, you know, um, uh, that's impossible. That, that scenario is impossible. And so, um, you know, buying meat, act, sacrificing animals is not, is not a sin for you. Um, uh, secondly, and related, kind of related to that is, uh, the other thing that I thought was really helpful was he said, you know, wake up every day knowing that, uh, being prepared that you might get fired that day. So be, yeah. just be ready, you know, live with your faith, live with the, you know, you know, uh, and then my buddy, Andrew, Andrew Krapschett's a CEO of Red Balloon, who we've had on the show before, uh, you know, he, he's encouraging all, all the businesses, uh, that kind of participate and follow Red Balloon. He said, you know, go when, when an, a colleague asks you how your weekend went on Monday, tell them that it, it was great. We went to church. We had a great time. Uh, my family, we hung out with my family afterwards, you know, like, like, don't be shy. Wear all that on your sleeve. And one guy, uh, from reported back to him, he got an email back from one guy who did that. And, and he kind of got berated for bringing that up. His colleague got asked him at work, how his weekend went. And that was his response. And he kind of got chastised for that response and was shocked 
that even just telling people that he went to church with his family that weekend was was a problem. So, Brett, well, I wait, think, wait, go yeah, ahead, please. Yeah, I do think it's going to have that effect uh, to where because it's going to provoke envy in people. They they haven't had uh, and seen productive and fruitful marriages and families. And for some people, it's going to provoke right. envy and they're going to have that type of response. But for others, they've been force fed this culture of death. They've been force fed a, right. a sterile culture all of their lives. And to see happy, productive, fruitful uh, marriages and families and, and life and what life is uh, like when you go with the grain of how God made it and how God made us in his image, mm -hmm. it's going to be attractive to people. That's very good, Rhett. Rhett, thank you for joining the Water Break team. How can people follow you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Rhett underscore Burns. Okay. Rhett thank you very Burns. much. And also subscribe to the Fight Laugh East magazine. Yes, sir. That's right. And thank you, Rhett, for joining us this week. Thank you. So woke, woke cancer is part of the cancer that is – uh, eating our country alive. Um, my teammate, uh, Jacob Daniels, is founder of Heritage Council. And, you know, part of the cancer, uh, you know, part of this cancer is woke cancer. And, and this wokeism very much acts like a religion on all of this. Uh, it, it, it's not just a, you know, what, a, what a, uh, the SBC called it, analytical tools. It's a religion. And, and even recently, you can think of a number of examples like this, but recently the Marta Kaufman, um, she created the, you know, the hit series, the friends, uh, friends. Um, well, she apologized for not having a diverse cast, you know, uh, she, and, and then she said, uh, that she didn't internalize systematic racism or systemic, excuse me. She didn't internalize systemic racism back then. She didn't understand it. Uh, so, you know, she had this 10 year hit series and they're all white heterosexual actors on the show. And so now she says that as a result of her decades of, of kind of woke sins here, she's going to pledge $4 million to her alma mater, uh, Brandy's university to fund an endowment chair in the school's African and African American studies department. Now, obviously Marta is not the only example here and not the only one dishing out these kind of indulgences to get rid of her her guilt um, but this woke guilt uh and payment plan it, it's not sustainable it isn't going to pay for her sins and it and it's really built on a false premises of sin shame and salvation um uh, jacob how do you how do you understand kind of woke culture as cancer and what should be the conservative way of leading of 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 casting a better vision um, yeah, let's look at this case in point. Uh, I would say that a lot of influential people today, including many in the church, uh, are having what I call a baptism by guilt moment. Uh, they're culturally forced to revisit their intentions, good or bad, in the past. And not just theirs, but also their ancestors and baptize them with guilt. Yeah. Uh, and when they emerge out of it, uh, they're, left, they're left burdened to somehow prove themselves absolved of their guilt by right. virtue signaling even if it means that they have to force others to pay on their behalf, uh, basically steal it from others. And or if, if that's not possible, crucify those who do not join in their guilt trip. That's right. Um, so what they're doing is basically putting on a new lens and seeing everything through the that, that one lens. And what we are seeing through this particular case and similar cases is that people have somehow it's not that they have internalized racism. What they have internalized is the claims of postmodernism. Uh, that diversity is, diversity is a necessary good. 
Mm-hmm. And that this diversity is justified only when it is identified on the basis of some external realities like race, uh, ethnicity, and gender. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a project destined to fail and, and which will bring society to a place of further decadence uh, through perpetual segregation. Uh, one of the flaws of this sort of culturally enforced apology is that uh, there can never be an end to it. It's like uh, digging old graves so that we can bury the dead again for future grievances. Uh, There there is an assumption on the part of people like uh, whom you mentioned just now, Martha Kaufman, uh, Mm -hmm. that the differences exist only between large identity groups and cultures and not within them. It's interracial and not intraracial. And that's a, a problematic issue. Now, uh, so by donating $4 million to her alma mater, which is only about 1% of her net worth, if I'm not wrong, uh, she's basically proving her further racism that all people of African origin have homogenous culture and they believe the same thing. And that they are so debilitated that they need her to lend her apology for them to prove their worth. Um, And there is also another assumption that that, that I want to talk about is that that truth, uh, which is like authentic lived experiences from their perspective, from their framework, um, mm. only exists among minorities and the oppressed, uh, which our good friend uh, Wadi Balkam calls ethnic Gnosticism. Uh, this gives unrestricted power to the minority groups uh, by giving pass to any idea construed as offensive or uncomfortable. Any idea, right? Uh, mm-hmm. By any members of that group. And that's a dangerous place to be at. Now, yeah. Where lies the serious offense? And culturally, this is where it is. And this is not what American foundations were uh, formed uh, to bring about. Uh, Now, when supporting a group on the basis of their differences, uh, we should uh, keep this in mind that that group would be defined by those differences rather than their genuine contribution to the society. Uh, We need to be acknowledging uh, the contribution that one makes towards a flourishing society, not just for one group, but for everyone. Mm-hmm. And in this case, if you see, uh, this is where the inconsistency is that uh, people do not recognize the current intentions, good or bad. They don't matter at all. But somehow your intentions in the past do matter, whether you, you remember them or not. So yeah. even in this case uh, with Martha, she may not recognize her intentions being good or evil in the past, but she's apologizing for that because of where she stands today. And that's, that's right. dangerous. Uh, so this is what I would say in terms of how should we go about, you know, uh, engaging with this issue. We got to be anti-fragile. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we have to fight well. We have to not give in to cultural pressures. But how do we do that? One thing that we can do is that we can emphasize individual responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we are missing in this whole debate. The, 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 the responsibility is being delegated to the collective to the society, to the system, not to personal individuals. And we have to cease seeing all of our, all of our life through the lens of just one thing that we encounter in our culture. That would be a big mistake. Yes. And instead of victim culture, let's promote accountability culture. And for that, what we need to be doing is we have to have gospel as the foundation. That has to be the standard. That has to be taught. That has to have, that, that's what needs to give us a righteous telos. Amen. Diversity, when we talk about, must have a righteous telos. And right. diversity is good when it is a diversity of ideas, skills, and temperaments, 
And that's what we need to bring together, regardless of what our external realities are. Mm. What um, with this can you know with this kind of the, the conservatism that I mentioned, it it tends to criticize. It it tends to be against versus for before something. Be 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 you know cast a vision that is okay. Um, not only we can be against this, but this is what we're for. Uh, how do how do we cast a better vision of what diversity looks like, you know, in the church, in society? You know, I even hate to use the word diversity to even ask this question, but but how do we cast a better vision as the church in all this? What we need to do is, as I mentioned uh, just now, that not give into cultural pressures. And one thing that you mentioned just a while ago, uh, that we have to be prepared every morning when we get up, that we might lose our titles, we might lose our jobs, but we might uh, uh, we, that we will remain faithful to the call that we have in our life. Mm-hmm. And we have to trust in the promise of Christ. And this is what I would say in terms of um, uh, envisioning a future, not just for ourselves, but, but also our future generation. Mm-hmm. We have to um, understand that the biblical idea of uh, reformation is an idea of process. Mm-hmm. So we have to fight against this idea of presentism, how we feel about these matters now, and that we have to somehow deconstruct and throw away the whole system and replace it with something else. We know we don't have to do that. Reformation and sanctification is a process that we enter into and God works through us. So practically, if I may say, we have to engage with these ideas at the very basic level. So I would encourage Christians to start with their own families. Talk to your mm-hmm. children and teach them what true and righteous diversity is mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. is it that scripture promotes. And I can say this, um, um, biblical ideas are so concrete in this regard that it mm-hmm. has shaped nations. And one of the nations it has shaped in a righteous way is, I would say, America. Uh, and I, uh, as someone who's come from a different context, I appreciate the fact that there's a process that's been initiated and that needs to continue and not disrupted. Thank you so much, Jacob. I appreciate you. Um, how can people follow you? Um, you can visit my website, heritagecouncil.org. Council as in counseling, Heritage Council. Yeah. Thank you for coming on Team Water Rake, man. Have a happy fourth. Thank you. You know, uh, uh, my team mentioned a number of things that I want to hit here uh, when I, as I close out. Um, but one of the things... Uh, that we have a that we need to really sort through is our theology of who God is, and and our God embody, embodies uni, unity and diversity. You can only have true unity in Christ. You can only have true diversity uh, in Christ. Um, and it is and if we don't if we don't have that theology coming from from God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If we don't have that theology of what unity and diversity look like embodied in in our god then we can't have it in what it look and what it looks like and how it shakes out in culture this is why you have black lives matter and this is why you have white boy summer they're two sides that you know they're 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 different sides of the same coin black lives matter is is a reaction and white boy summer is a reaction they're both divisive and their primary allegiances are not the gospel our primary allegiances are not our skin color, not our race, not our, not even our family. Our primary allegiances is is to God first and to His people. 
to God first and to his church. Those are our primary allegiances. And as we think about casting a new faithful conservatism and casting that vision in such a way where we're not pushing and prodding and getting people to act or to come on, jump on the board, you know, bandwagon. We want to cast a vision in such a way where people are getting behind and following that vision. This is, uh, Christians need to rethink the, con- the last 50, 60, 70 years of conservatism that has been against and not been for. That has been built on, I really liked um, how uh, Josh Abitoy put it. He said, conservatism, our modern conservatism has been kind of anti-communism, some sort of economic libertarianism uh, with social conservative values. But at no point is that conservatism grounded in Christ. That's just a Christless conservatism. And we want a conservatism that's built on the foundation of Jesus because that's anchoring conservatism. We've These last 40 years, our pastors, our political pastors have been Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, you know, that sort. And it's been a detached conservatism from the word of God. And so now we have a generation like Fox News that's willing to accept Bruce Jenner. That's willing to do sympathetic pieces on the transgendered family. You know, the good old American transgender family. That's the kind of that's where our conservatism is going if we don't change the course of what it's going on right now. And that's why a lot of what I'm trying to do here on Waterbreak is dedicate to create casting a vision of what faithful conservatism looks like and trying to and doing it in such a way where we're Lord willing over time we'll have a, a vision that pulls people along into a new conservatism. So with that said, thank you for joining Waterbreak. Have a happy 4th of July. Happy birthday, America. And go fight, laugh, and feast. This is the Water Boy with Water Break. When tyrants take over, what's the first thing they do? Disarm. It happened in Russia, China, Germany, and most recently, Afghanistan. Why? Because disarmed people are easier to control. And over the last century and a half, American tyrants have been carrying out a slow, methodical disarmament that no one is talking about state education. Tyrants know that education is warfare. Our rulers have a vested interest in making you totally harmless. They've got big plans and they don't want you getting in the way. Think about it. Would you rather fight an army decked out with high-powered rifles or a bunch of dinky water pistols? They know that if you can think critically, you're a threat. At New St. Andrews College, we want to graduate men and women who are dangerous. Dangerous to the world dangerous to the principalities and powers, dangerous to spiritual wickedness in high places. Education can either arm you or disarm you. It can make you a threat or make you a useful idiot. (laughs) So where you get that education counts. Click the link to apply to New St. Andrews College today. Armored Republic exists to honor Christ the King by providing tools of liberty to free men. New York State just banned body armor. Armored Republic is suing the state of New York in federal court to resist their arrogant war against your God-given rights. Mass shootings are tragic acts of evil that are best resisted by armed citizens and brave watchmen ready to fight back. The main violent threat to human life is not individual criminals, it is tyranny. This is Armored Republic.